Thank you. I was talking to a guy last week. He told me he thought uh, because of the way things were going in the world that the world wasn't going to last much longer. Well, they've been saying that for a long time. The disciples thought that in the day in which they lived. Well, the fact of the matter is that one of these days, it's going to be true. And we're not sure exactly which of those days it becomes true on. So as Christians, always in the minority, living in this present world, what is our relationship to this world supposed to be like? Particularly if we're living in the, towards the end times, and especially if we're living in an environment that is increasingly opposed to everything that we stand for. In the midst of this, there are some tremendous things going on. Um, can't tell you details because it's not, uh, it's not safe, but a good friend of mine uh, working in a predominantly Muslim area, um, they've had meetings yesterday with 24 Muslim imams and sheikhs. These were the religious and political leaders of that whole area. They're coming to meet with them because they want to know about the gospel. Now, these are the leaders and the evangelists uh, in that area for the, for the Muslims. Tremendous thing God's doing. And they opened a dialogue, and uh, they were able to witness to them freely and respectfully, and they were able to hand them Bibles in Arabic and um, some tracts that talk about Islam and Christianity, and they have agreed to meet again. And so there's tremendous things going on. And that's just in one little area that I happen to know about. But uh, it's happening all over the place. So as Christians, how are we to relate to this world um, with the increasing violence as far as we're concerned? And when our, um, the legality of what we do becomes more and more restrictive. Some Christians have the idea that we are supposed to rule this world. And we can take it. And so we become very aggressive and even militant and sometimes. Others think that we are supposed to renounce the world, to draw back, get away from it, so we won't become corrupted and infected, just to distance ourselves as much as possible from the world. The biblical answer is neither of the above. The biblical answer is it's meant to be redeemed. And that's our call, and that's why we're here. Particularly if you read the 17th chapter of John, Jesus' prayer over his disciples, the longest written prayer that we have uh, of Jesus. And what he talks about, he says, God, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I want you to have them in the world, protect them from the evil one while they're here. His desire for us is to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's the call that he's placed upon our lives. So the Bible, though, is very realistic as far in terms of what the expectations are and the questions that come. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. Jeremiah was with the group that stayed in Jerusalem, the Jewish group, 
uh, Ezekiel was in one of the groups that got deported to Babylon. And so you have these two great men of God, one over in Babylon speaking God's word, one still back in Jerusalem speaking God's word. They're separated by time and distance, and their ministries are incredibly similar because God is doing the same thing among his people, and they're both hearing him, and they're hearing the same thing from God. So in Ezekiel chapter 33, um, Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah both understand that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so in Babylon, the captives, the people in exile... This is what they are saying, Ezekiel 33.10. God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, say to the house of Israel, This is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? It's a good question. Because they're realizing that the difficulties that they are in are difficulties of their own making. It's a result of their own choices, their rebellion against God and their refusal to turn from their sin. They understand that. Now they're in captivity, uh, foreign country, everything's different, oppressed. Um, now what? Has God abandoned us, forsaken us? How can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's something that we need to keep in mind. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. It's a person created an image and likeness of God that is so defaced and corrupted it that uh, they're going to be destroyed. But there's no pleasure for God. But rather that they turn from their ways and live. And then God is making this impassioned plea. Turn Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And he sets before them two ways, a way of life and a way of death. So if we're living in a day in which um, the sins of nations are beginning to catch up with them and God is beginning to hold countries accountable, um, what's our response as Christian people? Uh, repentance and a, a plea for others to repent as well. That's the, that's the key. The message hasn't changed. And as things become more intense, the message becomes stronger. Uh, repentance and turning from our wicked ways. New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, picks up on the same thing. Peter's writing to the, a general letter to the churches that's to be circulated among them. And in this letter, he is writing to them... <clears throat> And this is a church that's being actively persecuted. Uh, people are losing their homes. They're losing their savings. <clears throat> Pardon me. They're losing everything, their possessions. They're losing everything. Uh, many of them are being killed, uh, persecuted, and killed simply because they're Christian people. And some of them are, are being challenged um, later on even more so by the Roman government. You can deny Christ and you can go back to work or you can maintain your relationship with the Lord you're going to lose your job and everything that, everything that you have and if you still don't then we'll put you in prison and if you still don't then we'll kill you now that's the, that's the everyday life that these people were living in and so Peter writes to them and he, he reminds them um, you know 
we're really strangers and aliens here. Our citizenship is in a different country. And so we are like pilgrims that are passing through. But that gives us a great responsibility to share with the people that are. And so he's talking about uh, the destruction ultimately of the world. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So he's saying the same thing that Ezekiel was saying. How shall we then live? Uh, what kind of people are we supposed to be in a world like the one in which we are living? And he goes on and he answers that question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What's our response into a wicked, um, antagonistic world? Live holy and godly lives consistently, looking forward with hope and expectation to the coming of the Lord. So we don't have a timetable. We don't know the date, but we know that he's coming. The psalmist asks a, a similar question in Psalm 11. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good question. It's one that um, Christian people ask. And remember, the writer of the psalm is David. And he says, I'm looking for refuge to God. And there are aggressive people seeking my life. And then he asks the question in verse 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, what foundations is he talking about? The foundations of morality, the foundations of character and trust and integrity. These things are being attacked in his day, and they are being attacked in our day, aren't they? Uh, breakup of the homes and families, the, the focus on self and selfishness and self-centeredness, um, the, the strong push to encourage people to manipulate one another, uh, to build your house on lies and fear. And so the foundations are being destroyed, and David lived in a similar time. And he's asking, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do? And that's where the parables of Jesus come in, about the guy who built his house on the rock. Uh, that's a strong foundation. It's not going to be shaken. But David answers the question, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he answers it, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. So we look up and we look to the one who can give us stability and strength and hope and the only one who can give us those things. Isaiah answers this question in a similar way in Isaiah chapter 33. And um, it's a very strong answer from the Old Testament here. In Isaiah 33, starting with verse 2, and then we'll look at verses 5 through 6. So Isaiah 33. And Isaiah also living in a time, you remember when they were threatened by the um, Assyrian Empire... And they came down and they destroyed 10 of the 12 tribes, wiped them out. Um, they never recovered as a people or as a, a significant group. And the northern kingdom of Israel had been obliterated by the Assyrians. And all of those people had been killed or carried away and so scattered that they could never recover. They came down and they 
took uh, so much of Israel, of Judah, the southern kingdom, all that was left basically was the capital city and the people inside. There wasn't a whole lot left. And so the prayer from Isaiah 33, O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. And then in verse 5 and 6, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with righteousness and justice. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And so God says, when your foundations are being destroyed, God is inviting us. Make him our foundation because he doesn't change and he is not shaken. And so the prayer is, God, we seek you, uh, Ezekiel says, through repentance. Um, David says, we're looking to you, Lord, to, uh, on your throne. God says, you're praying for grace, and I will be your strength and your salvation. We serve a God who saves. Now, Peter Also, in the first letter that he had written, in chapter 4, verse 19, again writing to the same groups of people that he had written to uh, later. And he's talking about um, suffering as a Christian. First Peter, the whole book, um, pretty much caught up in that. It's a very strong, powerful book. It's a good book for us to read. And he says in verse 19, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now this is basically what this group in um, Charleston is doing publicly on national television. They're not letting the hatred and the animosity, the fear and just the cruelty of an individual ruined their lives. It's impacted it very greatly. They've lost loved ones, people that can't be replaced as far as their families and homes are concerned. And yet, they are not stooping to becoming like the people who persecute them. They're not calling for vengeance. They're not calling for this young man's blood. But what they are doing is, by the grace of God, they're taking a strong stand in their faith, and they're saying, you are not going to corrupt us because we are looking to the Lord And by his grace, because of his love and mercy in our lives, we forgive you. We forgive you. That's not an easy thing. Living in Africa like we had all those years, we were in South Africa when they started the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And this was a group of of, uh, legal government people who were going around trying to bring some sense of justice and closure to all the atrocities that had committed in the warfare between the different races there. And they were horrible things, unjustified, unwarranted, just because people were cruel and mean and wanted to, uh, to inflict terror and pain on someone else. And they did that systematically and with the backing of the government. So now that all of this is coming out, and they had these people who... Uh, perpetrators who for the first time were realizing the significance of what they had done. And they were coming and 
on their knees coming to these people that they had so offended and so hurt and taken their lives and their dignity and everything else away from them and with tears ask, confessing their sins. And God enabled many of these, not all, but many of these people also with tears to look these men in the eye and said, because of the grace of God, I forgive you. And those men that had done that were crushed. Not just broken, they were crushed. Because looking for vengeance and anger and hatred, they found someone by the grace of God who was able to offer forgiveness and restoration. And everybody was able to bring closure to that kind of thing. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And they, they did this publicly. They, did it, they had it on TV. They went around to different places in the country. Um, it was an extremely powerful thing to see how God could do that kind of a thing among people today. That's what happened in Charleston. Um, people enabled by God's grace to respond in a different spirit. And um, it's a witness. I hope our nation hears and takes to heart. It's a powerful witness to the glory and grace of God. So that's what Peter says. Those who suffer according to God's will commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This word commit that Peter uses, uh, we've heard this one before. Jesus hanging on the cross just before he died. Father, Father's Day here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the same word Peter uses here in 1 Peter 4.19. If we are Christians suffering according to God's will, we commit ourselves to the faithful creator and we continue to do good. Just like Jesus did. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23... He's again talking about suffering um, for your faith. He's not suffering because he's done something wrong. He's not getting the results, um, the retribution of his crimes or his sins. He's suffering now because he's done what's right. He's made the right choices, made the hard decisions, taken the proper stand, and he's lost anyway. He's, he's been um, punished when he hasn't done anything wrong. Matter of fact, he's done everything right. And still, he's being punished. So, he says, we need to take that patiently. And he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So, he says, we need to follow the footprints of Christ in this. And he says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. So, verbal abuse. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so that's what he's calling us to do. When things are being attacked, our value systems is being undercut and mocked and made fun of, ridiculed in the public media, what's our response? Be consistent. Continue to live in the proper way. Continue to reflect the presence of a loving God. So this trust manifests itself in continually doing what is good. It's a costly call. 
This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. And so we're looking at a bunch of scriptures because I want you to see how pervasive the instruction from God is. He hasn't changed his mind. It's Old Testament. It's New Testament. And he's calling upon us as Christians to be con- as, as uh, consistent in the day and age in which we live. So it's like a, a, a person who's very gifted in sports. Uh, the person who's really gifted is a person who can be consistent in their performance. Uh, anybody can have a good day. <laughs> I even have one every now and then. But the ones who are good, the ones that we look up to as our heroes and things, these are the men and women who are consistent in it. They are good every day. Part of the reason that they're so good every day is because they practice every day. And we think it's automatic, and some are more gifted, and it comes easier for some than others. But even the best have to practice, uh, or they lose out. Because you've got a guy who's not so good, who practices every day, and he will beat you to death. If you're very good and don't practice, you will lose because of the heart. And so that's what God is calling us to. He's calling us to a heart issue here of being consistent as we walk with the Lord, drawing closer to him so that we have the resources out of which these things can give. So Paul talks about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And then he, he in verses 9 through 21, he gets down to the hard issues of living. Um, What does this look like, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling, hold on to, what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He's talking to Christian people. We need to be committed to each other. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Now, this is people are persecuted now. Joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Um, curses belong to the world. We understand that. And when we curse back, that's, we're speaking their language and their spirit. And it means nothing. They expect it. They curse and you bless, then they don't know what to do. That's a different spirit and they don't know what to do with that. They'll either ask you about it or they'll try to kill you. Because they can't handle it. Those who are open, um, it may become more aggressive because they're afraid of you. You're scaring them. They're cursing, you're blessing, it scares them. It scares them to death. They mask it with aggression, but they're afraid of you. Because they don't understand the spirit that's in you. We do. We know where it comes from. It's not us, it's the presence of the Lord. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, 
live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And what he promises us is this. There is a day of accounting, a day of reckoning that's coming. But that's in God's hands, not in yours or mine. And so we need to trust him with that. Oftentimes, revenge and bitterness and hatred come in because we think God's not doing it quick enough or in the way that we would like him to are not as severe enough. But God knows what he's doing. And if we want the speed and the, the, um, the justice and all of that, we, we need to be willing to receive it as well as give it. And uh, I don't want to receive it. <laughs> so I've got to be careful about wanting to give it. And that's what Paul is saying. Vengeance, that doesn't belong to you or to me. That's God's field, not mine. If I decide to take it myself, it's because I don't trust God to do a good enough job. That's the only reason. So he says, do not take revenge, leave room for God. He does a better job anyway. The summary is in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In math, somebody help me here. In math, it's a negative plus a negative equals a positive. Is that right? Multiplied. Okay. Negative times a negative is a positive. Okay. That doesn't work when we're talking about morals and character and the spirit. That does not work. A negative times a negative, you just end up with a whole bunch more negative in the spiritual realm, in the morals area, in the areas of character and integrity. So do not overcome evil by evil. You can't do it. All you get is more evil. The only way, the only, only way evil can be overcome is through good. You cannot do a lesser evil or to do an evil in order to become a, uh, overcome a greater evil. It never works that way. It just multiplies. So the only way evil can be overcome is the way that Paul tells us. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So this is the verses that Jeremiah was sharing, uh, that's Jeremiah. Elijah was sharing with us about Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29. So this letter... Jeremiah 29 is a letter that Jeremiah in Jerusalem wrote to the captivity people in Babylon. This is a letter to the exiles. And they have been exiled, forcibly removed. Their country has been defeated in battle militarily. Puppet rulers been set on the throne. And um, the people with any skills, any management, administrative, uh, practical skills have all been forcibly deported to Babylon ripped out of their homes, families torn apart, uh, many of them dead, um, taken to a foreign country and plopped down in the middle of that foreign country and says, okay, um, now try to rebel. You don't know the language, food's different, dress is different, everything's different. Now, see if you can survive. And so their prophets, they stand up and says, uh, it's okay, God's going to come and deliver us. Now, we're sinful people, and we're lying and cheating, stealing. Uh, 
committing adultery and all that kind of other stuff going on, but it's okay because God's going to rescue us. So keep your bags packed because it's just a matter of time before God steps in and God says, no, nope, it's not that way. One of the things I noticed in this letter, Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 4 where Elijah started, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wow, we thought it was a Babylonian army that did that. God says, no, that was me. Later on, he says, I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. He says it several times in this letter. God says, I'm the one who caused you to go into exile. And the reason I did it is because, number one, I love you. Number two, it's to save your life. Because those people in Jerusalem, they're going to die. We thought they were the fortunate ones. They got left to stay in their own homes and take over the property of those who left. They thought they were doing pretty good. They thought they were the chosen ones. They were. They were chosen to die because they were so corrupt and so rotten. And so the ones that they were pitying, those who had lost everything and been taken to exile, God says, that's my hand. I took those people out there to save them. So it's a different perspective. We're looking at what we've lost. They were looking at what they had to give up. They're looking at the hardship of what they're facing. And God says, this is a blessing. This is a blessing and my provision for you to spare you. Wow, different way of looking at things. So things are not always as they seem. And we need to look beyond the surface areas of what's happening around us. And when people come to us and try to get us to do things that we know are wrong, we need to look at the motive. What are they trying to accomplish and what are they going to do to me? Because they will destroy you and take joy and pleasure in doing it. So we need to allow the Lord to speak to us and give us the integrity to make the hard decisions and take the consequences, whatever they are. So how do we respond as Christians in a secular society that's becoming increasingly aggressive? I think what Jeremiah says to these people in Jerusalem is where we need to live as Christians. Uh, build your houses and settle down. Plant your gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Always in the context of believers now. You're not marrying outside because you're going into idolatry when you do that. So within the context of, of other believers. Increase in number and do not decrease. We're not in this uh, fortress mentality here. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Well, sometimes we look around and we think, man... This is a desert, or this is not a place I want to be. Or if I could choose to be somewhere else, I would be somewhere else, you know. But you can wish all you want to, but you are where you are. So make the most of it. Make the best of it. God says, you seek the peace and prosperity of the city, the county, the nation to which 
God has placed us in at this time. Because you pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we seek the peace of our country. We may not agree with the leaders. We may not agree with the direction in which they are going. He's writing this to people who have been captured by a pagan, aggressive, powerful, idolatrous nation. And they are oppressing these people, and they're right in the middle of all of that. And God is saying, you pray, you pray for the peace of this place, because that's where you're going to find peace. You're not mounting a rebellion. For us as Christians, we're going to vote. We're going to do what we need to be as good citizens of this country. We're going to pray for our leaders that God will open their eyes. We're going to pray for mercy and grace because the decisions that they make affect you and me and our children and grandchildren. Now, they can have all the political advisors they want, but God controls the heart. And so we can pray. And we can pray that God would give us godly leaders. And if we don't have them, that God would make them godly leaders. And so that's what Jeremiah is telling these people. What are we supposed to do in a, in a place like this? He's telling us. You look to the Lord. He's your confidence. He's your foundation. He's your strength. He's your peace. Regardless of the circumstances around you, you answer graciously and respectfully. And you pray for those people. And then you take the consequences. But you live consistent Christian lives. The tendency is, they've hurt me, they've taken everything away, so I'm going to become bitter, and I'm not going to help anybody again because they took advantage of me. Well, you'll never do anything. You'll just wither up and die yourself. So you pray, you trust the Lord, you look to Him, you seek His will, and you live consistent, holy Christian lives daily. And you care for one another. Because when the pressure comes in, the temptation will be to turn inward and become possessive. So we have people, you know, the survivor guys, you know, they store the food and they get the guns and they train their kids how to fight. And when the end comes and there's no food, we've got ours back here and we've got the guns and nobody else is going to get it because this is ours. You see what they do. You just come in and in and in and pretty soon you're fighting each other. Because the food gets smaller and smaller. Then what? Then you're going to fight each other. So God says that has nothing to do, nothing to do with Christianity. We're people who share, people who give. Um, I wish you could go to a third world country. You walk in there and those people have nothing. I mean, really Nothing. We have poor in this country. It's nothing like there. They have nothing. But if whatever they have, whatever they have, they will share with you. And if you come to visit them, if all they have is enough for one person, they will give it to you and they will do without. And they'll do it gladly and joyfully and praise God for the opportunity to do that for you. They're different people. That's why it's good for me to go there. So, pray to the Lord for these people. And God says, when the time is right, when the cleansing has taken place, when the priorities have been refocused, when the direction of the heart is where it should be, God says, I'll come and get you. But I'm with you where you are 
and you need to trust me. Settle in, make your life, get on with it, teach your ch children, raise them in a family, pray for them, pray for, your, for the government, and be consistent. And that's what he's called us to do. So what did Jesus say about it? And we'll close with this in Luke 21. They're talking about end times here. Jesus is. In Luke 21, 28. And they've asked him about the signs of the times and all of that. And he's given very general answers. Which is the only kind that he ever gave when they're talking about the end time. And the important thing about the end time is not the time. And every time they asked him, Jesus kept telling them, it's not for you to know. <laughs> Lord, are you at this time going to restore? It's not for you to know. Lord, when is, going, when is that going to happen? It's not for you to know. <laughs> they ask him over and over and over again. And every time he tells them, it's not for you to know. So here we are 2,000 years later. Well, what time? when is it coming? It's not for you to know. He's going to come like a thief in the night. The, the, the thief doesn't call you on the phone and say, uh, Hey, man, uh, Uncle Derek, I'm going to come break into your house tonight about 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, make sure you're away. I'm going to come in and clean you out. <laughs> you know, they don't do that. He comes when you least expect it and the most inconvenient time possible. And so whenever they asked him, Jesus said it's not the time, it's the relationship. If you are ready, if you're right, walking right with the Lord, then it doesn't matter what time it comes. It's just... It just doesn't matter. Um, there were some churches in Africa that were getting ready to split over this issue of time. And they asked us to come in. And they, they asked me, they said, well, what do you think about the time? And I said, well, I, first of all, I think it's the wrong question. <laughs> Why do you want to know? That's the question. Why do you want to know what time? So I'll tell you. The reason you want to know when the Lord's coming back is so you want to know how long you can sin without changing. So you, you want to know, so how long I can continue my bad habits and my sinful ways before I have to change. I want to change real quick before the Lord comes back so I can get into heaven, but I don't want to change too soon. Good grief. Well, why would I want to do that? That's the only reason people want to know the time. Jesus said it's the relationship. You get your heart right with God and it doesn't matter when he comes because you'll be ready. So they're asking Jesus and he's telling them, you know, all these things, uh, wars and rumors of wars and all of those kinds of things and uh, families breaking up and families attacking each other, uh, children against their parents, husbands against their wives, parents against their children. It's part of everyday news, isn't it, in our society and culture? So what does he say? Luke 21, 28. And so we're looking here at all of these things that are going on and, and we're thinking, well, maybe it's time here. In verse 27, it says, At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In verse 28, When these things begin to take place, what are we supposed to do? Oh no, are we fearful? Are we trying to hide? Are we trying to, to do all these other things? What, what, the, what are we supposed to do? When these things begin to take place, stand up. He says, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He says to the Christian, that's not a threat. It's a promise. It's good news that the Lord is coming. 
So don't be hanging your head. Don't be trying to find a hole to crawl in. Stand up. Now is when we need to take a stand. Lift up your heads, he says, because your redemption is drawing nigh. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, a positive mes- message. It's a posture of confidence and hope because the people around you are going to be cringing in fear and running around in a panic with anxiety and fear, worry and woe. And when economic crisis hits this country, that's what you see and that's what you hear. For the church, that should be our finest hour. And we should stand up and be a beacon of light and hope and anticipation. Our redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. So, Lord, like David, we look around and say, The Lord is my rock. How can we say to me, flee, hide, fear? The Lord is our rock, and you, Lord, are on your throne. You are our foundation. You are our hope. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a pagan land? It's because the joy of the Lord is not limited by time or place. And we can sing the songs of Zion wherever we are because you are with us. And we can offer you praise even if we're in a prison cell chained to a wall like Paul and Silas. So Lord, we pray that you would put that within our heart, that tremendous joy, that great overflowing peace that comes like a river because we know the source of our life and the source of our hope. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who infills us and gives us the ability to be able to forgive to bless, to rejoice. And we ask that we become an increasingly part of our everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen.